All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Welcome, Megan. Hey, hey. How are you doing? You just ran this last weekend. Congrats. I did. I ran a half marathon in Eugene, Oregon, and I'm pretty sore today. But yeah, I had a blast. Woo! Congrats. And then you're now you're on uh, a week of rest, getting ready to come out to Denver and run one out here. Yeah, except. You know, your air is more difficult to breathe in, so I'll have to work on that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. No, no expectation. I'm just excited. I, I joke that you're just coming to hang out with me and that there happens to be a race too that's going on. A hundred percent. That's how I like Cortland. to think about this trip. A hundred percent. How has the rest of your week been? <laughs> it's been, oh. you've been doing a lot of shit. Work's been crazy. Yeah. Life's been crazy. Yeah, no, I'm I'm doing I'm doing all right. It's it's interesting. It's um yeah, busy. It's a busy time of year. Um at the college. I don't know. People know that I'm a I'm a work at a community college. Um and things are getting rolling. So yeah. How about you, Cortland? I have been busy as well. Uh, things have been busy at work. Uh, I am transitioning into a new new role at work. And so that's got me excited. I like new things. It's my Enneagram 7 ADHD personality where I'm like, ooh, something new. Uh, so yeah, so it's been, it, I've been enjoying work and uh, that's been cool. Uh Okay, stop. My favorite thing about this conversation we're having is that we're pretending for our listeners like we didn't just hang out for like 45 minutes before we started recording. <laughs> well, like we're just like trying to bring everybody in to the tone of the of the hangout Perfect. of the conversation. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, we got to talk about some of the mundane, the day-to-day uh, before we get into talking about all the crazy shit that's going on on the internet. Um, but is but it what, time to do that? It might be. Twitbits? What should we get into <laughs> Let's it? Let's do it. Let's talk about Twitbits. Every week, I feel like Twitbits is getting harder because there's like it feels like exponentially more shit happening. And it's like trying to figure out like what the main thing this week was on Twitter. Uh it it just like snowballs. Like I'm like, are we still talking about Elon Musk? Is that what's happening? Uh, well, that was last week, that, I guess. Yeah, but on top of that, I um, I think I I've started blocking so many people that there'll be chatter about 
leggings <laughs> and things that I'm yeah. like, I, I didn't see this. I don't know what, it, and, and so sometimes it is, I just need to block that out. I know, you know, I tweeted out something about, you know, how it affected me to have two years of prayer where I was confessing daily and, um, you know, some that of the made feel to the wrong side of Twitter. Yeah, didn't it, for a little it, bit. it did. And so, you know, I just, there was not dialogue involved. It was a lot of just like, Oh, look, these, this is what deconstruction says now that confession is bad. And, and, and just a lot of like hate. And I just blocked it because I was like, I can't, you know, I, and I shared it with some people. I shared the screenshots or whatever, but I was like, I can't engage when they're going to be this way. And so, um, I think there is this line between, and, and everybody's line is different. And I have ultimate respect because I know some people are like, I, I do engage and it's cathartic for me and that's fine, you know, but for me, sometimes I get to a point where some people are just so toxic and so hateful that I just block. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I think the, the, the helpful thing can be having, safe little pockets of spaces where you can kind of like duck into. And, you know, I know that's how like some discord communities and some group chats and yep. DM threads. And, you know, if, if, if the, the, the main, if the main is a little overwhelming, it's hap it's helpful to have some little spots to be able to duck into and go like, okay, let me get some social interaction because sometimes you don't get that from, from the main of Twitter, you know, yep. every once in a while you get this beautiful kind of like collective social experience from, uh, the, the, the main feed on Twitter. Um, but oftentimes there's so much going on. Uh, we could do whole episodes on so many different topics that are being, you know, the 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 center point of some kind of discourse on Twitter and especially as you begin to expand your Twitter following outside of a a a, a small subset or a segment, right? Um, because then it's like, okay, all of these intersecting uh issues and things that are coming up for different groups of people uh are all coming at you all at once uh on on Twitter. And it's it's overwhelming. Yeah, sure. it definitely is. And um, I think one thing that I wanted to bring up for Twitbits is, and because this is from people that I have not blocked because they're people that are near and dear to my soul is chatter about the, I guess, quote unquote, deconstruction community. And also I would say the way people talk about. Again, I like the way Janice said it, the big weird tent. <laughs> the big weird tent that is the deconstruction community. It it's is. a wild circus under here. Yeah, it really is. And and also I think this this whole notion of like deconstruction influencers. I, I think we need to go there. We need to have this conversation because it's something that you and I talk about sometimes off air, but I do yeah. think that it is a conversation that we're ready to have more publicly. Pastor Pastor Trey had a great tweet, uh, la I think it was last week, and he was like, he was like, I don't know, you know, he's like, I'm over here on Twitter, but I go over to Instagram, and the influencers over there on Instagram are always happy. He said, I think I'm <laughs> going over there to be an influencer. He's like, follow me there if you want uh, to, to, to see this career bloom. And so I went over to his Instagram, and he was like, I'm over here starting my influencer career on Instagram. <laughs> 
and I DM'd yeah. him and I was like, oh, I came here because of your tweet. And he was like, well, welcome. He said something That's back and I was like, yep, it does. It's a whole different aesthetic of people over on Instagram than on Twitter for sure uh, in terms of how the influencer life works. You got to have a good interior designer and stylist if you yeah, really want to be a, so a, an influencer on Instagram. It's so true. Um, but I do, I kind of want to have the conversation because you see a lot of different people and, and this is not, you know, we've talked a lot about critique from outside the community and I'm just going to say community, you know, there is this messy, uh, whatever, it, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of individuals, but there is a community there too. Um, but from within side, there's a lot of different people that have different experiences and different perspectives. And, and I read that shit. I, I, I listen, I see it, there's pushback, there's critique. And, um, some of it I think is super, super valid. And some of it is just, you know, a different perspective that I just kind of take in and I'm like, okay, this is all the kind of data. Um, what do we do with that? And so I think right now there's been a conversation. I know Joe Lumen had a big thread about, Patreon and, and subscribing and, and getting paid for the content that you create. And I know, you know, there's, yeah. there's a distinction there because I think there's, there's a difference between having a Patreon for content and having something like, you know, a, a deconstruction course, which is a lot different, which there's been chatter about recently. So I would, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, it's it's a complicated you know topic to talk about and part of it part of where i feel like it's it it becomes difficult is because there's a muddled distinction between folks who are consuming content and folks who are creating content and there is a lot of different levels to uh what you know where your relational intersection happens in these spaces because it's not as clear cut, I think, as some other, I guess, like maybe, I don't know, subcultures or industries where you have like more clear leaders or influencers or celebrities, really like, like anyone can get like the, get into this space and start creating content about their experience in deconstructing and mm -hmm. leaving church in processing through their experience and their trauma like uh and so it's it that i think creates a really like conflicted way that that people aren't sure exactly how to respond because you may have relationships with people who are creating content you may also be consuming content from people who you don't have relationship with there's a lot of perceived relationship and we've we've heard that discussed before in terms of like you know when you listen to a podcast and you subscribe to a patreon and you dm with somebody or you participate in something online with somebody there's this perceived amount of relationship that you have and so all of those things together, to me, I think make this com community or this subculture of people leaving church uh, make some of these conversations a little bit more difficult because there is so many different intersecting relationships going on and uh, – I guess I just experience people in 
all sides of it. We obviously get to have conversations with a lot of creators and a lot of people who are making content. But the fact is having a podcast or having a Patreon or having a YouTube channel is not a very high bar for, you know, anyone can do that, right? My 10-year-old has a YouTube channel, right? He has, you know, uh, accounts where people can follow him and consume his content, right? He's 10. You know, uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, content creators uh, aren't necessarily, like, a following doesn't mean you have anything necessarily of, of, of more value than someone with a smaller following. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I just and think, I think so. that when we deal in the currency of following, when we go, well, this person has 30,000 followers, so there is some type of inherent value to that person hmm. uh, that they should be able to leverage that value to monetize is just a, a, a flawed, I guess, just like presupposition it's just like it's just not accurate so then we start having to go like well then what is it what is what is it that allows someone to monetize content that they're creating yeah and i think that's the question i mean i think the ultimate question is what what like for you know for us we have a podcast and we pay money every month to put on the podcast and you know yeah, like this costs us money yeah which exactly. is money well spent we love doing it uh, but it also is a certain level of privilege that we have to be able to spend money on that, right. To be able to create this content. Right. Yeah. And I and know so like we've had conversations about having a Patreon because to, to help offset the cost, because there is time involved and invested in all of that. And also, you know, on top of our day jobs and everything else. And so I do think there's space for, you know, people that engage in, in work that they value to if have have an option where they can show that value you know in in different ways i know but i i think even with that we're still going to have a podcast that's available to everybody there might be some like content that we create that we add on as extra as part of you know something else someday that's something that we've talked about but I think it's just, there's a lot of nuance to how things are done and how it's presented and, and what is happening. Because I think once we name ourselves at, or somebody tries to name themselves as an expert or somebody that can offer a level of expertise or a level of certification or, or you know, some kind of like, hey, you've deconstructed and, and here's your certificate. <laughs> like, I think then it starts to become, okay, what what is that about and what's happening there? And at that point, you know, you have to take into consideration the trauma that's in this space too, because if it's not done in a way that's, uh, of course, I always talk about being trauma informed. If it's not done in a way that's, that's highly trauma informed and recognizes, you know, as Janice Legata says, like, you don't want to be building a platform dependent on hurt people. And so I think, mm. you know, it, it really is like, why, what is the need to monetize? What, what's driving that? Is it to offset some cost? Is it to, you know, offset some of the emotional labor that goes into that work? Or 
are you creating something as, you know, are you curating some kind of platform influence or status, you know, based on hurt people? I don't know. Yeah, it's to me it's the commodification, right? It's the it's the turning the work into a product that that you sell and it creates some exclusivity or barrier to entry for those who are consuming the content, right? I mean, and and unfortunately there's a lot of similarities between the way some folks have engaged in the influencer economy in this space hmm. and the way the like personal coaching industry kind of, you know, that I was exposed to was like, oh, I have these, you know, 12 keys to growing, you know, your blog or whatever. And, and here's, here's the thing that always bugged me about that entire thing. And, and I, we, I had Jeff Goins on the podcast. Uh, he was the very first interview that I ever did. This used to be his shtick. And there was a ton of people in this space that was like, I have a blog about learning how to blog. And if you want to learn how to blog better, you pay me to teach you how to blog, right? Mm -hmm. And I get subscribers to my blog who want to learn how to get subscribers to their blog. It's almost like a pyramid marketing scheme at one, at some point, right? Because the people who I'm drawing in are people who want this platform, right? And mm -hmm. I think that that's where it gets a little cringy for me is when it's like, okay, I want to be able to, if we, if we were like, let's offer a course about how to do a deconstruction podcast, right? And we gather a big amount of people who are listeners to our podcast and subscribers to our podcast about how to do a deconstruction podcast. You are, you are selling the performance yeah. and that you are selling the platform as the product and and then the substance of what we're actually talking about goes away. Yeah. Right. And absolutely. And I think there's I but I I guess what I'm trying to say too is I think there is a place to to offer or to show there is a place for people to have some kind of I, I hate the word influence here because it does feel, you know, like very evangelical celebrity pastory to me. But I just, I do need to say that, for example, outside of deconstruction, last year when I was, you know, changing my career, I was leaving the teaching field and moving into a different, different job. I followed an Instagram account called Teacher Career Coach. And that was her, her whole thing was helping teachers that were leaving their careers. And she didn't necessarily have a special credential for that. She just was really good at it. And she had a podcast and she had an Instagram account and she she DM'd with people and she communicated and she had ways that you could pay to support her work, but she had a ton of free content. I don't, I, you know, I, I honestly can't even remember which part I engaged in with money and which part was free, but like she was so available and it, it really helped me kind of process how to leave my teaching career. But I do think there's, you know, there's people that are, have a skill and they're, they're good at it and they're able to kind of work with that. And then they're able to kind of figure out like, okay, how can, how can I 
allow people to value my work or show that they value my work so that I can continue the emotional labor of this work and the time that I spend on it and continue to help and support people this way. And I think there's a distinction between that kind of work and then what you're saying, which is like, how can I, you know, platform on platform building or I, I don't even know if that's, if that's it, but there's, there's things that are happening that are like, this is not just about supporting people that are struggling. This has now in some places become about building a following and, and building something big and, and, you know, trying to make it as a, as an influencer in this space. And I, and it, and it totally changes the, the, who you're about and what you're about. And so I think there is a difference there and, and I can't always name it. And I see people tweeting about it and, and what I don't want to happen and what I see happening is I feel like the, the chatter is generalized to everyone in this space. And I don't think that it applies to everyone in this space. I think that there's, there's, everybody's different. And I don't think you can make broad generalizations in the same way that you can make those broad generalizations about evangelical celebrity pastors. Because I think you can say things about celebrity pastors, but you can't generalize necessarily the deconstruction community or deconstruction influencers or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I don't know. It's a it's a conflicting thing. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was probably two years ago, I remember a thread that Micah J. Murray wrote about this conflict between wanting to do art and make art for a living and then like constantly feeling like the currency that he needed to gather was these, you know, these pixelated hearts on witty tweets and he was like Mm -hmm. i want to just create art but like the publishers and the you know the machine the capitalist you know machine is like well how many followers do you have and how how many likes did you get on your tweet or your post and and then there's a lot of pushback about if you monetize your art you know are you selling your art out or are you you know giving that you know are you uh you know are you a sellout or are, is your art less valuable or meaningful because you've monetized it? But then if that's the case, then how do you actually make a living as an artist? And I think that, that, that while I don't think we're going to arrive at like what the good answer is or the exact answer is here, I think part of the solution is creators being willing to talk about it and being willing to actually engage with the people who are they're following, you know, like like the people who are actually consuming their content and 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 realizing that at the end of the day, if you are monetizing your following, then listening to the people who are following you should be like priority number one. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think two things, I think you hit on the very, very real reality of having to have a platform in order to publish or in order to be some, or, you know, create, be a creator at all, because I, you know, that's very true. And I've seen that as somebody who wants to write a book someday, you, there are numbers that agents look for and publishers look for. And so there's that piece of things that has to be taken into account. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there are, there are, there are numbers and it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate like result of capitalism, like capitalism 
and like the 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 systems around us uh do not create an environment for artists to be able to be artists or creatives to be able to be creatives um and and again i i feel like it's very different when we're talking about artists or creators when we get into this space where you're dealing with a lot of people who are coming out of abusive situations and traumatic situations and you know it's just really you really have to just be mindful of how you are navigating the space and how you're navigating your your influence and 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 your platform you know like like there's got to be a way um for creators to make their work the focal point of what they're doing um and there are people i believe who want to rally around and support good work um as well, take a Joe Lumen's means- thread for for one i mean her thread she's she's very transparent that the content that she puts out is available for free and her patreon is a way for subscribers to show that they value her work and and i think you know there's so many creators especially people of color, especially women of color that are putting a lot of labor into helping people understand things like dismantling white supremacy and decolonization. And, and honestly, there are people that are very willing to have the conversations for free, but yet they're saying, you know what? It would be really awesome if people could just value the time and effort and the emotional labor that goes into having these conversations. And so I am going to put a tip jar. I am going to put a Patreon because they should have a tip jar. They should have a Patreon. You should be able to have a way to say, hey, I know that 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 30-minute conversation was a lot, and I want to respect that and value that and show you that. And so I am going to leave this tip or I am going to you know, subscribe to your Patreon because the work that you're doing has value. Yeah. And I think, I think it's about, it's about structuring it in a way that says, because like I support Joe Lumen's Patreon. I support Dance Legata's Patreon. I, several other Patreons that I support, I support because I want more people to be able to see that content. I yep. think this content is valuable. I see the content. It's not that I want access to something that's going to uniquely advantage me. It's not that I want to have proximity to somebody who I think is going to give me some type of social equity, you know, or social value. It's because I have gotten value. I've 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 received value from the content that's being created and I want more people to be able to experience that and I have means to be able to support it, right? Yeah. I think when you limit the content to the people with means as a way to create unique value or proximity or social equity is when you then become, you know, uh, somewhat problematic because you're saying there's a particular product that you can get for this price tag. And those with the money, those with the, the privilege, those with the ability to spend money here are going to get that unique uh social equity 
product, this unique value certification, whatever it might be uh, that they are buying with their privileged resource. And, and that's why I feel like you have a lot of creators that, that set things up in a way that say, you can give $24 a month, you can give $12 a month, you can give $4 a month, all tiers get access to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because we want for everybody at every stage to be able to have access to this. And we know there are people who can give more, who have resource to give more. And if, and if you have value, it's the same thing we're doing with the PDX meetup. Like there's cost associated with us doing this meetup and renting the space and traveling out there and gathering together and catering breakfast and whatever, right? There's costs, but like we want for those costs to be distributed in a way where those who have more resource can contribute more resource, not with the goal to get access to a special product or a special level of engagement or whatever, but because they have the resource to do it and we want that to be shared with everybody who's coming, everyone who's going to be there. And, and to me, at the very least, if you don't have that type of approach to how you're monetizing your content, then you're, you're missing the very basic level of, of how to make your content creation more accessible to more people. And, and what is it about, right? Is it about getting more people this information because it's valuable information that everyone should have? Or is it about getting some special piece of information or special piece of value to a limited number of people with privilege, with additional resources and creating a, a system where those with the most money and power and influence amass more money and power and influence because of accessibility and, and ability to buy proximity to people with platform or influence. Yeah. Um, well, and all that it is complicated and all that to say, speaking of people that have valuable things to say, I'm so excited about our guest today. We have Rohati on the podcast who, um, wrote a book that is coming out soon that you should all pre-order. And I, I yes. was able to get an advanced copy and, and read a little bit. And we talk about that, but Wow, this was a great conversation and I'm so excited for our listeners to hear it. I am too. And I I just really enjoyed getting to meet and hang out with Rohati because it was, I don't know, there's something about him that was like really kindred. And I was like, man, fuck, I think we would we would hang if he was in Denver or I was in Canada. I think uh, I think we would hang out. So I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. I'm excited to share it with uh, you guys today. So let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. All right. I'm so excited to have you here with us today, Rahadi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've interacted with you on Twitter for quite a while now, and it's it's yeah. been good getting to know you and kind of seeing the, the stuff you put out. And, and I've actually, uh, spoiler alert, have read a little bit of your book that isn't even out yet. So I'm excited to dive oh, cool. into that. But before we get into that, we always love yeah. to give our listeners some context. So if you could just... Okay. Give us a bit of history. How did how did you grow up and find yourself in faith spaces? 
Yeah. Um, do you want to ask more specific questions? Um, yeah. Did you grow oh, oh. up? Did Did you grow up in church? Was your Were you one of those like born again from birth folks? <laughs> uh, no, but mostly. So it's okay. always the evangelical question of of uh you didn't ask this of how did you come to christ isn't that it what's okay. your yeah. come to faith story your testimony give us your testimony yeah. your testimony uh, yeah testimony it's just like i don't have one like um i guess i'll make it up kind of it's just i don't have one um i don't the world didn't come crashing in down or into my heart when I said a prayer or anything like that. It was just, it just was. Um, did not grow up in the church. We started to go to church after my aunt came to faith. My aunt went off and did basic training in the army, which is weird because in Canada, it's not a big, like the military is not a thing here compared to America, night and day. So the fact yeah. that she went to basic training um, is kind of wild. The fact that she found Jesus, as it were, because some Quebecers, uh, that's also wild, took her to church. And uh, she came back and then told my mom. And for a brief moment in time, the whole family, mom, dad, and I, we all went uh, to a church. I was too young to know what was up, right? And we eventually transitioned to an ultra, I don't know, charismatic church. Like speaking in tongues, white steeple church, which was probably why we went there is because it was the only church that was kind of around. Not to say mm -hmm. Calgary was a small city. Um, we weren't, but that was the closest church to us way out in the suburbs. So that's kind of where I grew up. My dad stopped going to church because uh, he ran up into all the fundamentalists, literal seven-day creationists. Like, I can still picture the VHS tapes with the dinosaurs on them. And my dad's mm -hmm. like, this, this is crazy. Like, I'm out. And so he never uh, went to church. We stuck around in this ultra-charismatic church, and I was just jazzed because I could get the little inserts of the picture Bible every week. Yeah. And, like, what more could you possibly ask for? And then I went from there, we went into more evangelical spaces. So church faith has always been that evangelical world has always been a part of my formation, but always like small time. Also because it's Canada, we don't have massive churches here. Now we kind of do, but the biggest churches for us would be like maybe a thousand people at a service, maybe. And so growing up in that context, it was always small. So I would always get, and Canada is like this, we always pull everything from America. We don't really have a unique thought, especially when it comes to evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there's exceptions to the rule, but everything that you had, we had. All the stuff you read, we read. All the music that you had, we sang. So all that was what we consumed but because the church was so small it it didn't actually overtake it was all there but it didn't overtake or permeate me completely um of course growing up in what i would call white evangelicalism uh was something that always pressed up against me and it required work to make sense of why 
I could never fit, not just my own personhood, but just spiritually, spiritually, um, physically too, how to fit within white dominant spaces. And that was everything around me, of course, but in church as well, there, there was something impeding how I could flourish as this multi-ethnic person. And my journey into, I didn't call it deconstruction, but that really started as a well, you know what? It, it was kind of at the same time as the country was voting to legalize same-sex marriage. So mm-hmm. I would have been t- turning voter age by then. And that's when things just didn't start, you know, weren't fitting. And I started to ask different questions. And that was just the start of the snowball. So that's kind of the abridged version. I stopped going. I never, did I? I stopped going to the church I grew up in. And then went to seminary right away after university. Did a little bit of work in evangelical spaces. Realized I didn't fit and it was obvious. So tried to do the church planting route because that matched a lot of my skills. Because, you know, growing up and going to seminary in a white evangelical denomination, white men are always going to be in charge. Yet I'm skilled still maybe, (laughs) but at the time skilled, had all the skills to do the lead pastor gigs, right? Mm -hmm. That was my thinking. That's how I passed all the tests. Man, they had tests after tests and I could do all those things. The caveat was I wasn't part of an ethnic church because I don't fit in any particular one. And there was no way they were going to give me a a white church anywhere. Couldn't go to rural Mm -hmm. Alberta anywhere. That would be nuts. So I, I wanted a church plant, but this denomination had no concept of what church could look like beyond the suburbs. And so I was banging the drum saying, hey, inner city, let's do something different, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that language was just not going to fit the culture. It still wouldn't today, 20 years later. So that was sort of the beginning and the end of fitting or trying to fit in by the end of it into white evangelical spaces or just any evangelical spaces. Um, This just wasn't a match. And if I was going to stick with my faith, I never really had a sense of leaving, but I knew there was nowhere to belong anywhere. And it was hard. And as I reflect back on why I'm a church planter, which that's what church people would call me. I don't use that anymore, but it's probably because I was just trying to create space where I could belong, Hmm. let alone try to ask questions of how the church could be better at mission or to love the neighborhood and the city and beyond. It was selfish in some ways because I wanted a space for me and there was mm-hmm. no spaces for me. There's no multi-ethnic space. There probably still isn't in this city. Not that we're white dominated. It's just that there's no true multi-ethnic space. Um, so that's kind of the circle up to like 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. That's All like right. half my life there. Take it. Yeah. So, so going from being, I think it's interesting. I think you talking about this this idea of church planting because uh you felt like there wasn't a place to belong you were wanting to create space to belong 
Uh, and it seems like from, you know, following your work that you're doing now, uh, you're still identifying to some extent that even in this stage of, uh, I guess, your your proximity to Christianity and to faith, there it still feels like there are a there is a lack of places to belong. Do you do you feel like uh, in the I guess you know I mean. I've seen a ton of stuff that you've said about deconstruction spaces and the fact that, you know, they're largely culturally uh, also very white spaces. Um, do you feel like the work that you're doing now is to some extent a continuation of that same mission or that same uh, necessity to create space um, in a space that doesn't feel like it includes you and, and so many others. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. When I think of how I can belong, I just honestly create space uh, for me. Now I haven't consciously done that. And of course, when it comes to building community space, and to be a pastor as well, you, you, you don't actually build space just to be selfish. But I'll tell you that it's always exhausting for those who are going first and to trying to build community. Um, more so exhausting if you're doing it in old ways, like the one single church planter off into the <laughs> sunset to draw people around a Sunday service and no, no, not that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, how do you build community around the table, the shared table around meal, like minds to come together. And so that has always been the chase and that's exhausting work, especially if you're always having to do it over and over again. Um, and so for me in church planting or, or let's not use that word anymore, just building community yeah, uh, building and and I would call it church. There's no, I'm not church ad adjacent or Christian adjacent or anything. No, I'm in the middle of these things. I don't know where everyone else is at, and I'm at the point now in my faith and ministry that I don't care where they are at. I don't care what evangel where evangelicalism is at. I don't care where mainline is at. I'm an expert in those things. Like I have the credentials and the degrees in it, and it doesn't have a lot for me. That doesn't mean that it won't have a lot for you or for someone else. But in this space, in my place, on this land, and I'm on Treaty 7 land here in Calgary, uh, here it means something to try to cultivate ideas around belonging that are different and different so that those on the outskirts who would never find place, even in the most contemporary church, could actually find home, could actually be themselves. Can you imagine that? It's, for people on the margins, and I'll just think of myself as, as a person of color, we are always looking over our shoulder to wonder if when we risk letting down our guard in the context of new community, at what point am I going to get caught? You know, at what point is the pain going to come or at what point is are things going to get weird? 
right? And to let down your guard in the context of community, knowing that you're in safe place, that's a gift. Oh, that's a gift. And so we attempt imperfectly, totally imperfectly, to cultivate those spaces. And you know what? It's hard. It's small. It's always small. But I really think that's the way forward for community in general, but also Christian community. That, to me, it's church, and it counts. Mm. Yeah. Um, since we're here already, I was there was something that I had seen in your book that I wanted to ask you about, because you talk about this sense of belonging versus fitting in. And you talk about, um, Brene Brown's work, braving the wilderness. And, but then you, you know, you critique, you critique her work and expand on it. And I would love for you to just, um, give us a glimpse into what, what's missing in the work that she does that you add when you're talking about this sense of belonging and and finding a place. Yeah. I don't know what catalyzed it. Did did you all read Brenning Brown? Were you up in that craze? Yeah. It, it was yeah. like, and it's still good. And I have her latest, well, someone bought it for me. I, didn't, I don't think I've bought any of her books, but I've read most of them. Yeah. And yeah, I read Braving, Braving uh, the Wilderness. Braving yeah. the Wilderness, the yeah. one about belonging. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. I think I read uh, that one right as I was leaving like a cult that I was in for like yeah. eight yeah. plus years. Yeah. And so it was like, it was pretty, it was pretty big for me at that time to be like, it's liberating. It is to talk about, if you've never talked about vulnerability and belonging, like she has a five-step process or whatever it is, you know, that's going to give you language to the things that you're feeling. So her work has been catalytic, I think, to certainly start and she did it probably just before the craze of of Instagram and all the Instagram therapists and, and all that <laughs> stuff. So she's sort of the pioneer to all that, but um, rooted her work in, in evidence uh, and her research. But what always struck me with Brenny Brown was that all the white people in my life were like, man, have you heard of this Brenny Brown? And like, you got to read Brenny Brown. And then all the white people were just like, oh, I'm belonging. Just like, oh, I, I feel like. I can belong anywhere. Mm. And that's belonging where you can belong anywhere, which is sort of Brenny Brown language. And when white people say that, like, I can't help but realize that there's a bit of irony here. It's like, of course you think you can belong everywhere because that's just part of cultural conquest. It's like, wherever you show up, white people tend to just kind of feel as if they could belong, Right. And yeah. so I was maybe filtering it through a racialized lens. I don't know if that was fair, but it was definitely like, you, you don't belong. The community has to affirm that. You don't just get to say, I'm part of this tribe if you're indigenous. No, the community affirms that in you. And so we've extricated relationship. We've made it excarnate in many ways, which is the opposite of incarnation. We deflesh the idea of belonging by making it individual. Now, I don't think Brenny Brown uh, is advocating uh, an approach of just rugged individualism. But my take was you can't find belonging if you end with the work of belonging to yourself. That's the start. 
but you can't, and, and this is a tough balance, you can't determine that you just happen to belong everywhere you show up, right? Mm. There is an investment, there is a depth into community that requires you to set down roots and that belonging is how you relate to one another, not just to people, but belonging to use, uh, to paraphrase um, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, it's a picture of shalom. It's a picture of the story of the garden, of how we were intrinsically connected to one another. The way that we are connected to one another, when it is good, that was the picture of shalom. It was that moment. And so how we are related between things, people, but also all living things. And it, you, we, we take that a step deeper as well through indigenous teachings into all things, into the streams, into the rocks, into the mountains as well. Like if these things are not resonating with you, it's because our formation doesn't go through an indigenous teaching of, la of land, right? So there are all these layers and... The layer that, and I'll, we'll just pick on Brenny Brown, even though she doesn't end here, but the layers tend to end with our individuality. Mm. Mm. And you could call out and be like, ah, and that's not enough. And then when people hear, they're like, oh, I'm not enough? Mm. No, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the work happens in tandem in relationship with what is around you, your environment, the land, culture, the people, the neighborhood, and also the spiritual aspects of all those things. So you put all that together and ask yourself, do you belong to the place that you're in right now? And if not, what do you have to do to discover a deeper sense of belonging? I think of yesterday was today, Monday. Yesterday, so we'll date the podcast, was Easter Sunday. Yep. And uh, I invited um, an Indigenous um, knowledge keeper into the space to share uh, that, or to do the sermon <laughs> for the church crowd out there. Um, and so he shared about that and, and about belonging to the land, and, it, and he corrected, uh, someone asked a question about belonging. Hey, you know, what about the people who are new to this land? And his response to, to do a poor job of it was, you know, often people might say, oh, go back to the lands where you're from. Go back there and find your identity. And his idea of working into the future, into relationship and harmony is figure out how through the stories of the land here, you can belong here. Now, that doesn't happen without invitation to do that, especially invitation from the indigenous uh, folks in your place and space. But man, that's totally different than, so how well can you belong to yourself? And when you can belong to yourself, you can belong anywhere. It's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, in the book, I challenge that and offer um, a wider perspective of the relationship between things is crucial to belonging. We can't ignore that because I think it's a pathway ultimately unto wholeness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I. So, so I'm curious because like, 
hearing you you talk about this, I feel like there is this this sense of in a lot of spaces that I am privy to in kind of the post church, post Christian. I'm I am a post Christian deconverted atheist uh, person myself, um, and I know there's a lot of folks uh, who are maybe in my camp who I think incorrectly fail to acknowledge the. I guess the 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 roots, the history, the experience that have happened to different people that aren't them. And they tend to, you know, center themselves in the story. Um, what does it look from your perspective? And I, I haven't gotten the pleasure of, of getting to read uh, your book like Megan has. Um, and so I don't know if you talk about this, but it feels relevant to what you're talking about in terms of you know, there is this, I guess, uh, to some extent inclination or impulse to divest from, uh, religious origin and tradition and whatever. And I think it often becomes very for the white new atheist, it becomes very, anti-semitic very uh very problematic i guess and i see this coming up a lot with people are like oh well it's just i just defer to logic and religion harmed me and so therefore then there's this uh this very kind of like i don't know dismissive uh uh attitude towards the faith tradition and religious practice of indigenous folks of various of other, other faith communities. And so I'm curious if you've seen that and what your take on that would be in terms of why, what is the, the white new atheist male? I I guess I see it mostly men impulse to be like, Oh, I've found logic. And it's almost like a new sense of white supremacy or a new sense of, of, uh, the fundamentalism that I feel like sometimes is a trap for people coming out of evangelical white evangelical spaces. It's a good question. I know it's not like a broad question, but it just, it feels like something that's coming up a lot for me and in, 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 well, my, yeah, I totally, no, I'm, I'm, I guess my initial thought around that is how have you contended with that? If that is your story, you've seen these things. Have you seen these things then inside of you? How have you navigated those tensions? For me, it's been trying to realize that that there is something to be learned and invited into. Uh, I, guess, I guess for me, it's it's been about questioning the presupposition that 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 my coming out of white evangelicalism doesn't mean that I've arrived and that I need to, to, to learn more. Um, I don't know. I, that, I, I, I think that's good. I, I appreciate you kind of putting it back on me. I mean, I, I asked because that's your story and that's your, 
and uh, you must have navigated that. Like, was it liberating walking away from evangelicalism? Obviously, it must have been in some sense, but uh, as well, the the jump into the new space that you're in of how you see the world? Is that how, would you pinpoint and use that term of liberation or freedom of where you're at now? Yeah, yeah, I would. But I also, but I also feel like it's a, it's kind of a, a incomplete and cheap sense of liberation that requires more, uh, self like reflection. Mm. Like I totally get, I love the word incomplete, but then you said cheap. So what makes it cheap? One thing I, if I can jump in here, <laughs> one thing that um, no, Rahadi's interviewing me now. We've totally changed the dynamic. Oh, that's that's fine. We're here. I'm here for. We're going to come back to cheap. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Um. It, we can complete that thought, but I, I just also want to kind of because I wanted to ask a similar question, but in a different way, and that's because when you told your story, you talked about not wanting to let go of your faith and not wanting to let go of your spirituality. And that was part of your journey. And I think like kind of hitting on what Cortland's saying and and what's happening here is I think that there's so many people that go through this faith deconstruction and they're like, throw it all out. All spirituality is bad. All faith is bad. All Christianity is bad. It's all toxic. It's all abusive. It's all harmful. And I think that a lot of people miss cultural traditions, spiritual practices, value in some of those things. And so I think, you know, coming out of white evangelicalism, there's a lot of people that are still centering whiteness and saying, um, well, I'm going to deconstruct from this toxicity instead of broadening and expanding their imagining, you know, what faith could be beyond white evangelicalism and beyond that in, in it's, you know, in that centering, I guess. Yeah. So I guess my question would be, is that, I mean, is that what you see too? And is that when you're talking about you want to hold on to your spirituality, your spirituality, like even reading and engaging with your work is that expansive, is inclusive, is liberating. You know, in the traditions that you practice, you do leave room for for people that are in all kinds of, you know, faith, tradition, faith practice. I was on a Another podcast with Blake Chastain on Exvangelical podcast, and we were talking a little bit about this, but Exvangelical tends to be white-dominated more so because it's white folks coming out of white evangelicalism. So everyone has their story. That's really important. You have to tell your story. You have to hang on to your story. But the thing through white hegemony, through the lens of white hegemony. So uh, uh, whiteness as dominant to your worldview. And white people, that's usually how you see the world. Whiteness is normative, you're, and that gaze defines what is normative around you. If, if it's, uh, something is not quote-unquote normal, it's because it doesn't match that hegemonic idea, ideal, right? So that impacts not only culture, but also impacts relationship. And so we know, understand how 
in Canada too, that communities are deeply segregated. Churches are among the most segregated spaces, period. The level of racial segregation in churches right now is on part of the Jim Crow era. Um, and it was achieved, to use terms uh, from Dr. Ra and also the work of uh, Dr. Edwards and Dr. Um, Emerson, uh, it was achieved through market-driven approaches. You didn't have to legislate it. You just needed to Rick Warren it. And you could build a church that is racially segregated with ease. And it helps when you redline neighborhoods and, and so forth. All that to say is that relationally, white folks have the least diverse networks of friends. Um, so yes, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. But when you look at white evangelicals, it's something like 92 to 95% all white in that network. I, I did like a micro test of this of ministers on social media profiles, and it's the same. So really small. Now, birds of a feather flock together. We, we kind of get that. Ethnicities stick together too. But eth ethnic folks and multi-ethnic folks especially, multi-ethnic folks have superpowers in that we wear all sorts of different hats because we can belong in many spaces, but we also belong nowhere. Uh, and other ethnic folks will stay within their spaces, their ethnicities, those communities, but they will stretch beyond into white spaces. So there is at least a capacity to entertain ideas that are not your own, or at least an experience to be engaged in a depth of culture that is not that hegemonic ideal. It's not whiteness. It's not what you read or see on People's Magazine or eTalk or whatever. Uh, I'm just trying to think of what TV channels there are. I have no idea. Uh, it's not you know what you see on HGTV, which is just all white people building houses. And oh, hang on, there's one black family that's coming through, or what? So that's kind of the cultural, right? Okay, what does that have to do with faith? There's a notion that you have been shaped and formed in this in this religious experience that is damning. It is. It is pushing and pulling in evil ways, which is how you can describe a lot of fundamentalism, white evangelicalism, but you can pick and pull from any tradition, right? But there's an assumption that there couldn't possibly be other ways, that there couldn't possibly be another Christianity, that there couldn't possibly be a different story about Jesus, and so what white folks, regardless, if you want to if you want to deconstruct out of Christianity, know that you're deconstructing out of a very specific North American, Western, white view of Jesus, and that there is a Middle Eastern, brown, Palestinian Jesus that is unlike what we normally hear, read, uh, hear preached about, podcasted about, and so forth. So all that to say is that you can pull yourself and you have to escape bad times in bad communities, bad churches. Like you got to get out. And the risk is coming back into the possibilities that Jesus still beckons you into a place of belonging where your wholeness and fullness of life, which I think is the core to the Christian story, it's not escape this world into heaven. It is the ultimate culmination of you living out the fullness of who you've been made to be here and then in the age to come. 
that those possibilities still exist and it's brown it's it's found in brown jesus or black jesus or so you can go into the logics you can go into um atheism you, know, you have if you have to go into those places, then you go. If you find that your story is there, then you go. Um, but the notion that you throw away all of Christianity and to go now all the way back to Cortland, I think is, and I'm going to use your word, this is not what you meant. I think it's cheap to throw away all of Christianity and the assumption that it all comes through the bad ways that mostly white men have built over the past 400 years. Are you playing me? There is so much Christianity beyond that and better ways for us to live and embody that are rooted, I think, closer to Jesus. Now, here's the problem. I could say, well, the biblical Jesus says, or, well, if we just go back to the early church, like my opinion of Jesus, we we all can do that. And we see what kind of trouble it brings for white evangelicalism, fundamentalism, for any tradition. So we all land and pick our Jesus. It's whether or not in the context of community that that Jesus grants life. And mm. so that can come in so many different shapes and sizes. That is the nature of Jesus is that Jesus is incarnate. And that means contextual, cultural, interceding into our history here and now. And we can interpret and understand Jesus through our cultural context every time that we appeal back to the ways of Jesus, that radical inclusivity, that pursuit of all things that make us whole. And to me, that's life-giving. Uh, to me, that requires white people to decenter whiteness, to find that brown Jesus. Um, for people of color, um, black other people of color. It is a decolonization of Christianity that needs to happen to, to decenter whiteness, white theological thinking. For indigenous folks, it is a reclamation of old ways um, into new ways. So everyone has, de depending on where you're socially located, different work when it comes to reclaiming a renewed story. Now, did mm. that answer two questions? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, yeah, that, I mean, that is exactly, I think, right on. Uh, I think coming back to what you, what, what you asked me and as I've been thinking and trying to kind of like process a little bit um, as you're talking, I think it's, I think it's cheap in the sense that, um, what is the, what's the opposite of egalitarian? What's the complimentarian yeah. complimentarian. There it is. Sorry. I was like having a total mind. We're all trying so, to erase that word from our vocabulary, Cortland. So you've no, succeeded. So, so yeah, it's totally gone. Now it's you've back. Arrived. You've been liberated. Uh, so I, th I think that, that it's cheap in the sense that, that, that it's, that it's a cheap substitute to say, well, I'm going to liberate myself from complementarianism and, and think that that is, deconstructing patriarchy i'm going to you know uh, uh liberate yeah, yeah, myself yeah. from the homophobia of uh uh evangelicalism and think that that is of a, a, a mature or uh yeah yeah that you're being inclusive suddenly because you have processed toxic theology yeah yes yeah and and yeah. and that's why it's cheap that's why it gives us the sense of like yeah aggressivism that's not 
Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why you can have people like Dawkins, who you know, who is you know an atheist <laughs> thought leader yeah, yeah, yeah. who's transphobic and problematic and doesn't understand yeah. basic yeah. human sexuality and gender. I mean. I have a tough time with a lot of that because I like no one's going to send me an award for being a particularly good pastor. And sometimes I'm not very pastoral. Like I, I find some of that super lazy. Like, um, but when I think and reflect on that, uh, I think culturally we're not used to depth. And so when it comes to digging deeper into what it might take to unlearn, like you, you serious, you spent two, three, four decades being formed in some type of toxic theology or Christian experience, how long is it going to take you to get out? It's going to take a lot of formation and practices that are totally different, yet we hold these cultural understandings and other things. Like, I like my autonomy. I like like <laughs> being an introvert and not seeing too many people like and how much how much of that is selfish and culturally driven where if we were really serious about community and covid throws all this out but if we were serious about what it means to embody radically inclusive community shouldn't we be doing something deeper as community rather than just me sitting at home and writing a book about it you know what I mean? Mm, I, yeah. I totally resonate with the notion of, of what's cheap. Um, if you're just like, there's a knowledge piece where you can social media yourself into a pathway. You can deconstruct using the, like there's so much awesome stuff. Like I, I would love to start. Have you heard of, have you heard of this TikTok before? Like all this. It, anyways, if you haven't, it's, it's, it's really huge right now. And I'm thinking yeah. if I got on the TikTok, but there's so many, awesome assets out there to help you learn. Um, but if you are not putting that into the context of community and trying things out, failing, but trying things out in a new way, I, I have no concept of how, how you will progress into anything. Mm. By the way, as a, like a thing as before the progressive Christians are scarier than, than conservative Christians to mm, me. Talk more, talk yeah, more about unpack that. that. Oh, progressive Christians, because progressive Christians might say the right words, but you don't know when they're going to bite. Whereas conservative or folks who are just like very clearly they have a position, you know, like where the white supremacy line is. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's there's no secrets. Whereas for white progressives, it is an invisible line and you don't know when you're going to hit. You're going to hit it. You're going to hit the white supremacy line. Uh, we'll use an example of a church here in, in Calgary, the cool inner city mainline progressive church. And they're doing great work of figuring out gender, um, great work around sexuality. I tell you what, man, you press up against white supremacy of a, of a church that is mostly paid by older white folks. Forget it. That is not a progressive wow. church, man. White supremacy will come through and you'll find where, uh, the proverbial rubber meets the road of how far you can go when it comes to inclusivity in the church. I mm. descend from my soapbox. Yeah, no, I we're here for it. Um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask before we jumped on our call, I kind of threw out like, oh, you're, wait, are you pastoring? And you were, you said yeah. that you've always been a pastor, but it's not always been in the traditional sense of the word. So I would love yeah. to have you unpack that for yeah. our listeners. I think that the way forward for trying new things 
pastors would not get paid. So I've never been, I've always been many vocational. The cool term in church planning is bivocational. I've always been that. Um, I've never actually been a traditional pastor. I've never um, had a, a gig at a contemporary church or conventional church rather, or even the most contemporary church. Um, <laughs> that's never been, but I know it. I've, I've done all the different pieces of it even tried to stay on because I was like, what am I going to do, church plant? Um, so in church planting, you mo- most churches don't actually church plant. They transplant. They take 50, 100 people from one place and then plop them into another, which I think is good work. I think every church should do that. If you're big enough, go and, go and do that. Um, I started from scratch, which was stupid. Um, don't do that. I think, let me use this example. <laughs> like COVID has given us a, a, a moment for us to find our kin, but online. And it was a time like 20 years ago, I was just like, online church, man, that's so lazy. Online church is just, you don't want to come in person. You do, that doesn't count. Like, give me a break. And now I see online churches being, it, it enhances accessibility for disabled folks. It now draws in, like, would would you two have met if it wasn't for this whole online church, whatever? Like, nope. it's wild. Yeah. And so all these connections, they don't count? Well, of course they do. It, now, would we find a deeper level if we could be around the table more often and touch, feel, and smell? Y- yeah, I think so. But, man, when we find kinship online – that that's going to count. But so none of mine, oh, sorry, now it's online to work backwards. It has been since COVID and it's opened the door for us to actually combine with like-minded people. So our, our online services, which are every other week, include a small community in another city. And we're doing things together and we're trying to figure out what does community care look like together in this online world and and, uh, disconnected by geography. Um, That's, I think, a picture of where we're going Uh, as church. It'll be really hard for many churches to survive pandemic, although many people are flocking back because they've just been, they need community. Like I get that. Like for myself, if you want to try things that are radically inclusive, um, like I was affiliated with a denomination just for credentials. I was sort of on the edge of inside. No one knew I was there. But when they did, they were nice. But ultimately, they decided that uh, they would affirm uh, the traditional uh, traditional marriage, Uh, uh, biblically, whatever they called it. And we knew and we fought and we said, we're going to be out. And so I gave up my credentials over, over that. Um, but that didn't change anything. Like mm-hmm. I'm not a pastor because I have credentials. I'm not a pastor because I have an MDiv. Um, I'm only a pastor by which is given by community, by relationship. So I only shepherd by who gives uh, that space in their life to. And I don't even do, like, I honestly should probably be doing more (laughs) of that. Um, But to do some of these things and to work with vulnerable populations, to work with racialized minorities, to with people on the margins, you don't get paid to do that. So 
I don't do as many things because there's just no resource for it. But at the same time, and before COVID, this was way better. You hold space imperfectly for people to come around the table. And when 12 to 20 do that, and there's a rhythm to your community, and you start to figure out community care to love one another, like, what more could you possibly want? That's not church? Okay, so maybe I'll do the Eucharist then, like once every year, six months. But does that count? So what we look like now is online. It's actually totally run-of-the-mill. Looks like anything other than the words like yesterday for Easter, we're not using um, – violent atonement theology. I'm intentionally using words around what's called Christus Victor. So I'm talking about nonviolent atonement. And that frames Easter for a lot of people in a totally different way, in ways they may have never have heard before. And they're still processing trauma from from God who requires blood, gore, violence, and death. Mm. And we're offering the possibilities of new life or new ways of thinking. So that's all there is. I'm not as intentional maybe than someone else, but it should at least give the idea to anyone else that you could do it too. Maybe I know a little bit more in the theology stuff, but my goodness, when does that ever come in handy when it comes to actually building community? It helps with helping folks deconstruct if they have theological things to deconstruct from, I've been doing that since Brian McLaren wasn't even cool, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've put that language into play for a long time that can help. Other than that, man, I I pray for more people who are better at doing community than I am to help us press forward because isn't that where all the hard work is at? So Mm. that's what we look like. We have made, this is old formation, church to be so complex that you need certain things in order for it to count. It can be small. That counts. Pray for your friends or send them good vibes. Care and love for one another really well and do so with your neighbors and God. What more? Yeah. We need more. I guess go to the one of the big churches down the road then if you need more, because there's no shortage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that approach, your approach and that, I mean, it's, it's so trauma informed and I like, even in your, even reading, engaging with your book, I see how you, you'll introduce a reference to the Bible, but you introduce it in a way that says, Hey, this is how I approach this. This is how you might want to approach this. If this, if you have a different relationship with the Bible that, you know, and, and Mm. you have such care in which you talk about divinity in a way that is so inclusive and inviting and, and not gatekeeping how people need to land here or there and just hold space for people that do have varied relationships with divinity and with spirituality. So I really appreciate your work. I know you have, um, we're kind of getting close to the part where we want you to like plug your work and, and tell our listeners how they can support you. And I know your book is coming out soon. So, um, are pre-orders available yet? Oh yeah. 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 Um, I don't know where, well, you can go to Menno Media, but, um, yeah, it's available everywhere to pre-order. 
Okay. Yeah. And we've talked about this on the pod before. Uh, although we put out episodes every week, who knows who's listening now? If you've listened before, pre order books that you give a fuck about, like, there's this idea that like I know it's going to come out and I can get it on Prime and it'll show up at my house in two days. And so why am I pre-ordering it? Because it fucking matters. So if you have a book that you give a fuck about, pre-order it because publishing companies, distributors are looking at pre-order numbers. That's how they're going to base decisions on how they platform, how they market, what kind of money, what kind of resources they put behind these ideas. So pre-order the fucking book. We'll put the link in the uh sorry can you put that, that too hard in the now? instagram no i mean if you are going to promo <laughs> that then i would like yeah. your face with that blurb on something that i can share and that would be yeah. fantastic uh, thank you sounds good i could definitely do that pre-order the fucking <laughs> book it's it's really important uh, but how and how else can people support your work do yeah. you have – where else can they find you on social media? What else can they do to engage with um, yeah. your writing? Well, first off, Megan, thanks for your words on on, on the book. I um, It's a weird thing that to always be cognizant of – I don't know if anyone's used that term of being trauma-informed, and I wouldn't even think – and this might be – I don't know, what is it? The Canadian in me? The Asian in me? Of saying that I'm particularly – uh, definitely not an expert in that kind of stuff. And I'm always thinking of ways that I'm going to fail at being either inclusive or trauma-informed. Uh, so I value your words and then also like looking over my shoulder like, oh, uh, like, can I say this? Should I say this? So, which I think maybe is just sort of normal. Um, where can you yeah. find me? At Rohati, R-O-H-A-D-I on Twitter. Um, and on Instagram, you can find rohati.com. There's some old stuff there. So I'm mostly on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast is my podcast. And um, we have some, we, I have some neat guests on there. So those are the places. I don't have a, a Venmo. I don't know really what Venmo is. Um, we don't have that up here. Our Cash App. Is that another one? Yeah, it's another I one. Don't have that either. A PayPal. Um, uh, yeah. Can people uh, just mail you cash? Is you, that <laughs> you can send check or money order too? <laughs> Dude, so yeah. I that reminds me of, and I had this tweet a while back that that so the the girl that I'm dating is Canadian. Uh, I said something about Colorado Springs, and she also is like doesn't really know. I say Kansas, and she's like, I don't know what the fuck that is. So, but I said Colorado Springs and she goes, Colorado Springs, 800281 or whatever the fucking zip code is. And I'm like, how do you know that? And she's like, oh, the end of every Adventures in Odyssey was, oh, send your, you can send your payments to folks on the family in Colorado Springs, Colorado, 804001 oh, or whatever. And yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. Shit, that is muscle memory. In your brain, dude. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's, I, yeah, I totally, I only know 90210, but I'm thinking of like a postal code. I'm thinking, yeah. so our equivalent of PBS here is CBC. <laughs> right when you did the zip code, I'm like M5W1E6, which would have yeah. been this. <laughs> the postal code for CBC from whatever kids show way back when. Dang. Now, um, what other yeah. trash is in there? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but before we wrap, one if, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. when we remember, I, sometimes we forget. But when we remember, we always like to ask our guests 
Um, if we brought you back to talk about some topic that's not deconstruction, not Christianity, not any of this, not any of the stuff that you talk about a lot, just a random topic that you're <laughs> completely interested in, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of a nerd on, it's not deconstruction. Like, I feel like we didn't even, do we even talk about deconstruction today? <laughs> Yeah, we hit on bit. it. We hit on it a little we bit. We hit on it. Okay. Fifty just minutes keep is on never going. enough time. It's Nonst- never enough time. Yeah. We got to have you back. Oh, happy to. Um, I mean, my my degrees in economics, so I can talk about why printing a bunch of money and inflation and all that doesn't really matter. Um, mm. Inflation does. But uh, are we talking about it now? No? Okay. No, no, not yeah. now. But for another episode. <laughs> should we just go right into it? We'll stop recording. Start Let's recording talk about next. monetary supply, kids. Come on around. <laughs> Recession. <laughs> Please. Yeah, that, I think that would be super interesting. We should definitely do an episode with you on that. Uh, interesting. Uh, go read book. a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen to a book. That's how I do it. Okay. Is your book going to be audiobook? Do you, yeah, are you yeah. recording uh, the audio Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, uh, nice. I'll be doing that. And I kept the rights to that. And um, cool. I'm trying to think cool. of a way to like throw in some. Uh, so if you listen to audiobooks, are there like cool little, does Harry Potter have like wand sounds that come out? Pew, pew. So or the, the, is it just the coolest talking? thing that I just, uh, uh, Professor Grace Lavery, um, who's a professor of transgender, transgender studies at Berkeley, uh she's the spouse of daniel lavery who's a guest we had on the podcast here her memoir came out and recently and she has these moments within the book where she has conversations with at the time that the the conversation happening with her boyfriend she's like so i come home and i ask my boyfriend this and then she'll have daniel's voice yeah be like yeah you know, yeah. come that, that was probably the coolest thing that I've that yeah. I've seen is the the real life dialogue with her and her boyfriend now husband, uh, in in the book. But yeah, there I, I appreciate shit like that in the audio. Yeah, book. yeah. Okay, good. So uh, I'm gonna throw in some gimmicks then. I had cool. Jerry Falwell I, Jr. on my uh, Thrive audiobook. <laughs> I did. I, I lifted it off. Uh, if this goes big, then he's gonna sue me. But I pulled it <laughs> off of uh, YouTube or something and put it in. Of yeah, him talking yeah. about, you know, bombing brown people in Iraq or whatever, something like that. I was just like, yeah, I'm going to take that. Well, and yeah. I do always appreciate when there's like, if there is like a conversation that's referenced. I know I listened to Shonda Rhimes' book, The Year of Yes, I think it's called. Um, and she had given a commencement address and talked about the experience mm. of like writing that. And then when she... Instead of and she had printed it in the book, but then she played the actual recording of oh, yeah, the yeah, commencement yeah. Cool. address. Like I always yeah, love yeah. that stuff. Hmm. Maybe I'll play something from this podcast. So it's on yeah. this podcast. <laughs> yes. Buy this cool. book. You you legal rights given here. You, <laughs> yeah, you can have it. <laughs> you can yeah, have it. Yeah, okay. Well, that means any, they'll probably go on a sweatshirt or something. Now. Yeah. Any of our episodes, you have you could take them and use them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was okay. really great having you here. Thank you so much. Um, love to have you you're back welcome. sometime and thanks for the chat. Yeah, yeah we really appreciate you're it. welcome. I felt we went pretty soft on white people, so I, yeah. I, I feel like I let you down, but <laughs> you, but you can come back anytime. And, Y'all doing a great uh, job. Yeah, thanks for what you're doing. That's it's uh, 
And I, I know it's a lot of work to to commit to this type of craft, and it's helping a lot of people. So thanks. We appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. It wouldn't be anything if we didn't have guests uh, like you. It's, uh, yeah, it's all about us trying to shut the fuck up and uh, <laughs> learn learn some shit. So we appreciate you coming on and teaching us some stuff. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. All right. I'm pretty sure that immediately after we wrapped that interview, I tweeted out that my Twitter was just going to become a Rohati Stan <laughs> account because I <laughs> love talking to him. I just, I love hearing what he has to say. And honestly, it was, I feel like it was too short. I feel like I could have gone on for like another hour. We have to have him back. We have to have him back. And I'm going to do my best to make uh, a little uh, uh, audio promo clip uh, out of out of myself at the end of that episode saying to go pre-order uh, Rohati's book so that uh, we can promote and get everybody pre-ordering his book because I told him I would do that. So I'm going to try, try to cut that in part of me being like, pre-order the fucking book. Because yeah. uh, I think uh, I think it's important. Uh, I cannot iterate, reiterate enough how important it is to pre-order books by authors that you love and you care about. Speaking of, did you see that Joe Lumen's book is slated? Hell yes. Kind of a, a, a release date-ish. It's yeah. uh, 2023. Um, yeah. I'm so, so excited about that. I'm excited that I can't remember if I mentioned this in the podcast last week, but I'll say it again, even if I did. I'm excited that the Deconstruction Book Club also is reading Wholehearted Faith. That was um, a work that was start. It was what Rachel Held Evans was working on and had not completed when she died. And Jeff Chu um, came through and and kind of finished that book. And so we're having that conversation. We're going to be doing that book club, but Jeff Chu has offered to join us for the conversation. And so I'm excited about that too. Um, so if you haven't joined that book club, jump in. It it's free. There's, there's not, there's not a, um, cost involved. I know we had that discussion in the intro, but you um, will get an official certification. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> From Megan. Oh no, but you'll, yeah, we'll hang out. It's a good place to chat. But, um, and the, there was something else I was going to plug. Oh, the meetup, the PDX meetup. Um, we've got like five spots left. It's almost full. So if you've been thinking about it and you're like, Ooh, I, I want to go, it's going to be a great time. Um, there is a cost involved in that, but there is a tiered cost. And even if you, if that is a barrier, reach out to me, I might be able to help you out. So. Yeah. Yeah. So either one of those things, DM Megan, uh, her DMs are are a party, so get get up in the DMs and uh, chat with her about either one of those things. Uh, we were joking the other day about how lame my DMs are. So if you want to DM me about either one of those things, I will just enjoy that someone's DMing me and then direct you to Megan. It's so funny <laughs> because I with both of those things. I really thought that everybody's DMs were like mine, and so I asked you, I like I asked you. Wait, you don't have DMs going all day long where you're just like responding and, and talking to people and you're like, no, no, that's not how things are. And I was like, oh, that's just me. I, and and no. I'm not trying to say that because I'm popular. I just, I, I, I don't even think it's a sign of that. I think I'm just always like, hey, if you have a question, my DMs are open. I think I just make it very available. So yeah, um, people yeah. take me up on it. 
you are accessible through the DMs. Uh, where would people find you around the web to be able to send you one of those DMs? Um, at Cortland Coffee. That's where you can DM me. <laughs> <laughs> at Cortland Coffee, wherever you are. Uh, I did I did sign up this last week for uh, Mastodon. So I have I'm now on Mastodon as well. So if you're if you're there, I always say I'm Cortland Coffee everywhere across. Um, but uh, Mastodon's a little weird. So I'm Cortland Coffee. Uh, at courtlandcoffee.queer.party, I believe is how you find me. I'll, <laughs> that, I'll, I'll, uh, very Enneagram it, seven of you. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, like a decentralized social media. It's like all like on the blockchain or something. I don't know how it works, but Mike Maharg is off Twitter and he's over there. So I, uh, I, I followed him over there. I'm still on Twitter, but I was like, well, I might as well get on this new thing. Too. <laughs> and I'm actually at The Pursuing Life on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm even on Facebook still, you know, hit me up on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Yep. If you want to, if you want to find, you know, any of Megan's stuff and, you know, DM it over to your grandma or, you know, mother-in-law or mom, brother, cousin, uncle. The aunt uh, you see at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Great. We'd love, we'd love for them to be a thereafter listener. Um, we don't get enough one-star reviews, so uh, definitely send your uncle our podcast. You know. Um, but yeah, you can follow the podcast at Thereafter Podcast on Instagram and Thereafter Pod on Twitter. Awesome. All right. Well, until next week, uh, we'll be back again with another episode next Tuesday. All right. <laughs>